the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Leo, thank you very much for your time. Let me ask a difficult question. Now, you're Air Marshal Leo Davies, AOCSE. Air Marshal, Air Marshal, how would you define that role? What is it within the Air Force? Oh, so that's, that's a difficult question, Gareth. It's not about the rank at all. And as you would understand or appreciate now in the Australian Defence Force, there is not just one Air Marshal. And potentially there could be three if we had an Air Force officer in the Chief of Joint Operations role and in the Chief of Joint Capabilities role, uh, there could be three. I think your question perhaps is more around the position rather than the rank. And if that then extends to the question of... Just for the Air Force. Just for the Air Force. Force, Explicate the role for me. I I think most things in life, for those that have worked with me and know me, uh, will will smile, I think, hearing that that I think most things are in threes or thirds, three different views. There's always three ways to approach something is my general rule. I think the Chief of Air Force position and what the government, what the department and what the people of the Royal Australian Air Force expect is really how I categorise that. So the, the first part first, uh, you, you are the conduit, if you like, the advisor, the information conduit to the government of the day. And that's who you primarily work for. And it was really one of the significant learning points for me in the job uh, when I first became chief was fully understanding that that was a very significant step up. You were no longer providing a brief to someone who provided the information. Mm. It was you. And there were a number of times where ministers, uh, indeed prime ministers, would be asking for your opinion on what the Air Force would contribute to this particular question. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is, I think, I almost said the most significant role. It probably is the most significant role, and that's the first one, advice to government. Right. Second, then, is being the Air Force representative to bring what Air Force are expecting, are able to provide, would like in the future, to the Australian Defence Force or indeed the Department of Defence because you work so closely with public servants, with uh, those in uh, suit and tie and skirt and jacket uh, that, that work so closely with us, uh, are an integral part of how the department works, of course. It's being able to characterise and deliver what Air Force needs in order to be a responsible member of mm. the department. So that's working with the CDF and the secretary, with the various committees, working with people, with dollars, with capability development, with international relations. But all of those, I pull into one one management factor and the role, one of the roles of the Chief of Air Force, is to be able to do that effectively. That's the second. What's the third? The third uh, is enjoy the heck out of the men and women that pull on blue. And it gets missed, I think, occasionally, sometimes... uh, different personalities operate differently. Uh, I very much enjoyed going to a base, going to a parade, watching new recruits graduate from 
one recruit training unit yep. at Wagga, I really enjoyed the understanding what our men and women wanted, needed, how they felt about how we, they were being led, where they were going next, uh, how they're getting paid, how, how their housing was, uh, mm. their equipment, did they have the right gear to get the job done, uh, how they were educated, how they were heard. And that, I meant that, I left that to the end, how they could be represented and then understand that what they were talking about was faithfully then drawn up through the Air Force to be able to be purported as uh, what Air Force needed mm. by the Chief. The way you've just outlined it then, if I'm a new cadet within the Royal Australian Air Force, I look to you as my boss. It must create for you a fair degree of tension that you see yourself sitting in three roles, government, bureaucracy, person in blue, to know how to keep in touch <laughs> with the person in blue while still performing those other two roles. That must be very challenging. How do you handle it? I go for a motorbike ride. Okay. It sounds flippant. but No, no it's not. But, but it's not at all. If one was not careful, the first the government pull is horrendous. It is the thing that will consume you. It, is, it will take up 23 and a half hours of every day if you let it. Then you've got to rely on your teammates. There are ways then, there is an expectation that it's a team effort. It's not one person doing all of these three things. It, you, you rely on the system, on the people that you have invested in. You've promoted. Why? Because they showed potential. They showed th those dynamics in their job that would allow them to work effectively. There is no way a single person can be across every issue and every element of the Australian Air Force every day. So the team does that for you and you yeah. trust them. No, and, and that's why from other people I've spoken to, why within the Royal Australian Air Force, as you p progress through it, you are assigned to different posts Absolutely. so that you learn the whole thing. My word. But let's go back to your role, Chief of Air Force. Let's say the United States of America says to you, we want to give to Australia the F-22 Raptor, which they won't. They never will. They'll never give it to anybody. But let's assume they did. For $9, you go to the chief, the Minister for Defence and you say, this is what we need. This is what it's going to cost. He says, no, sorry, can't do it. How frustrating would that be? Oh, it's not frustrating at all, uh, to, to be honest, because the scenario you paint is does not happen very often. And indeed, if I was to... Gareth move that question or open that question a little bit uh, in, in my response. There is a reasonably well-constructed capability development process. Mm -hmm. It does have some ins and outs as governments uh, allow more money to come to the department or a little less. It depends on whether we are in conflict or we are not. Uh, it depends on the strategic circumstance of the day. And that sounds all grandiose, but, but it, the question about uh, how we would deal with Russia some decades ago was a real one, but it's not the question anymore. Yep. Uh, the Ukrainians might have a different view today, but, but we're now looking at Indo-Pacific, we're looking at a more regional focus. Where, sure. So things have shifted. The question then about F-22 and the offer, the real question is, do we want that toy, is the wrong question. It's not a Royal Australian Air Force that wants that particular aircraft. question that we ask ourselves and then provide to government, the solution is this effect. So why doesn't the Royal Australian Air Force have B-2 bombers? It's a fair question. Why don't we get some of them? The real question is, 
not do we want B2 bombers. What we want is effective long-range strike. That is the nub of the question. So how do you fill that? You can fill it through the Navy. You can fill it through special forces. You can fill it through space-based systems. There are many ways to approach. You could do it diplomatically. Mm. Without being specific, mm-hmm. uh, if, if I look back the last 15 years, uh, there have been a number of decisions made by governments about what to purchase for Navy, Air Force and Army yes. that, from my information, have been the wrong purchases when they could have purchased, spent the money more effectively on this rather than that. I would assume, as Chief of Air Force, Chief of Army, Chief of Navy, it, it could be potentially frustrating when you know what is necessary to get to, to fulfil the, the objective and the government has other ideas or bureauc- you said three roles or even bureaucracy has other ideas. My, my general question is then, I suppose, how to fix that problem. When you characterise the question that way, uh, I, I, I would admit to an element of frustration. Uh, it's certainly not one of anger or bang the table. Of course not. That's not, not, that le- not that sort of frustration. It's more about have we as an Air Force, as have, have the, has the chief of the day represented what we wanted mm. accurately in a way that al- allows the most effective decision to be made? And I often looked at why didn't we get that thing that we knew we wanted or we knew through Air Force air power expertise would be the, the most effective. Sure, sure. Uh, and I said, well, we obviously didn't sell it properly because the minister just turfed us out. Uh, and, and you think, <clears throat> what didn't we get? When you go back and every time, there's no, no time has this not been true. Double negative, excuse me. When you go back through the staff, the minister's staff, um, through the National Security Committee uh, discussions, even go back through our own capability development uh, uh, apparatus system, and you go, so they thought this was going to cost $2 billion. Where the heck did they get that from? It's only $50 million. We're not talking... How did, so they turfed us out because they thought it was going to be really, really expensive. So we didn't do a very good job at selling that, did we? No. So that's where we need then to look at approaching that same question differently with a different lens that allows the decision maker, the government in most cases, to, to make the right decision. Okay. Before it, it, I, before I le- leave you from the hot seat of Chief of Air Force and we talk more <laughs> about your career, let me ask one last question on that role. Yep. <clears throat> Army, Navy, Air Force, what degree of cooperation is there across those three services when deciding what material to buy for each of them? Or is is it just a competition? It is extraordinarily supportive. I have sat in very senior committees and forums where respective service chiefs have said, I think we should find a way to get Navy this particular capability. Uh, It might hurt Air Force, we might need to delay a particular project to yep. fit it into the budget. Uh, it happens more times than most folk would think. Uh, I, uh, for my time as Deputy Chief and Chief, uh, there were still arm wrestles a- about uh, what each service w- would require in what time frame. Uh, but uh, I, I was extremely lucky uh, and 
I say somewhat privileged to be able to work with, uh, with a bunch of like-minded folk who ultimately wanted what was best for defence. Yeah, yeah. So defence really comes first. Uh, 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 that is my, okay. my experience, yes. Why did you join the Air Force, Leo? Now we'll go right back to the beginning. <laughs> well, that's one end of the spectrum to the yeah, other. Well, we'll come back to the other end in a moment, but let's stick with your, your joining. Was it 1979? Yeah, 10th of July, 1979. Uh, Why? I wanted to fly. But you ended up, uh, you ended up as a navigator. That's uh, not flying. No, not quite. Um, the, the view that I would hold, uh, and, <laughs> and I, I, I suspect uh, many of our uh, navigators, my fellow navigators, would hold the same view. I wanted to fly based on a very uh, simple uh, essay and experience at Kerrang! Uh, aerodrome in north central Victoria where a gentleman who flew for the Royal Australian Air Force in uh, in two wars, uh, Roby Manuel, uh, his granddaughter was in my class and the SA winner was uh, given a flight in a Cessna at Kerrang Airport. This is while you're at school, sorry. This is why I'm still at yeah, school. Right. This is this is about grade four. Oh, primary school. Primary school, somewhere back there. Okay. And uh, uh, I didn't win that essay competition, but the whole class went out and uh, we watched Roby do his pre-flight. The uh, young gentleman who won the essay got in and they did uh, a couple of circuits. It really wasn't a very long flight, but uh, and I went, I, I want to do that. that. That is what... And from that day, there was no plan B. Okay. I, was, I wrote to the Royal Australian Air Force immediately after in that. In year four? In year four. Uh, and said... Uh, I'm me, and I'm joining the Air Force in due course to be a pilot, and uh, I'll keep riding, and we'll see how we go. And how long did you keep riding? Every year from year four on? Yes, every every year. When did they finally answer your letter? Uh, finally answered my letter probably about year 10, when I was asking what... Uh, what subjects I should be selecting for year 11 and 12. Oh, that's sensible. Uh, to, to, uh, to help me get the right uh, level of education. Uh, and do you remember th what they suggested? What subjects to do? It was a very simple reply. Um, my, my memory uh, is it was from a senior enlisted a flight sergeant or sergeant. The letter came back saying, thank you for your interest. Uh, the, the guide for, um, for year 10 uh, is math science, uh, largely. Yep. Uh, and that was the guidance. There was nothing specific in that, but it was a response. And I, I had a letter from the Royal Australian Air Force and it came at about the right time, I reckon. Just out of interest, Leo, did you ever keep that letter? My dad has it, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So did you then go into years 11 and 12 doing maths, double maths, double science, or just... It, so I did applied maths, applied science, and back those days you had to have one of the artsy, so I did Australian history because it was uh, easy to <laughs> write. the artsy. <laughs> Spoken like a true air marshal. Um, you joined, though, as a navigator. Was that, the, was that the choice you made or the choice they made when you joined? No, I got uh, run over by the recruiting bus. Uh, I, I, I went down to Melbourne... Um, did the 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 testing yeah. uh, over a couple of days medical uh, at my exit uh, interview uh, before driving back uh, up north uh, we were living in Strathmerton by then right uh, but uh, it was well technically you have met the standard for pilot 
but on this intake, which I later understand was an academy uh, intake for the next pilot's course, it was already full. So the, and this is where I think a bit of BS occurred. But On I, their part? On their part. The recruiter, I think, was BSing me just a little. The, the response was something along the lines of, even though you've met the minimum standard, you haven't done extremely well at all, you've met the standard, you can either wait for a couple more courses, which could be, and we're talking about now about very early 1979, yeah. in February or so, uh, you can wait and it might not be till next February or the middle of 1980 before you would be able to get a pilot's course. But 57 NAV course is starting uh. in July. We can guarantee you a position on 57 NAV and the transition to pilot is pretty straightforward if you do pass NAV course. So my outside assumption is they needed someone in the NAV course. So let's tell this 17-year-old. Yep. Yeah, okay, right up. Was that person, that examiner or interviewer, was he still in the Air Force when you were chief of the Air Force? No. Why? Because <laughs> I know what I would have done. Anyway, moving right along. So you join, you join as a navigator mm -hmm. and you're on what? P3B and P3Cs, the Orions. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Uh, I, I would... I'll throw in, I'm at risk of... of, uh, oh, you, of go for it. ...of uh, extending this conversation too, too, too long. There was an one piece of my navigator training that uh, I believe held me in good stead uh, in terms of working with people or understanding people later in my yes. career. Uh, I nearly failed nav course. Very, very close to failing nav course. I, I failed several early rides and indeed was on what in those days we termed a scrub ride. This was your last go. You failed this one. And you're out. You're out. Uh, and a very uh, wise uh, C-130 navigator uh, on, on uh, at ESAIL at the time uh, took me aside and uh, w was... Uh, very generous in the you're approaching this all wrong your mindset about navigation and what you're supposed to do in these flights you're not you don't understand it have a think about it this way and i did and it changed it was a watershed moment on the so that's triangular velocities that's all we need to do to keep this hs748 pointed in the right direction and from that point i did reasonably well i didn't duck the course but uh once once that i i reflect on that now because along my career at various points there have been reports and individuals who have struggled and it's worth really worth another couple of minutes of why are they struggling and what could we do as an outfit yeah, yeah. Uh, whatever level you're at what could we do that would just give them a chance to see how to do it differently and uh, I, I've been very impressed with the way our Air Force, and I'm flicking now to later again, but I, I, it's one of the things I like about the Royal Australian Air Force of today, and that is uh, you can have a red-hot go at just about anything, no matter who you are, yeah. uh, and we will help you get there if, if you're indeed yeah. This is capable. one of the things that it struck me most significantly about the Royal Australian Air Force of the various people I've spoken to, both current serving and former serving, is that if there's been a problem in training as a pilot, if you look like you're not going to make it, well, how can we help this person mm -hmm. make it? 
Yep. Yes, they may eventually not make it, but let's not just yep. wipe them out straight away. And that's, yep. a, that's a significant aspect of the training that the RAAF gives. I believe so. I'm not quite sure whether the same degree of concern and care would exist in a lot of other air forces, but it certainly does in ours. And it also seems to, I don't, don't know whether your experience with it may support this, it seems to also be the case in the United States Air Force. Yes. There's a great, for me, outside looking in, a great similarity between the two air forces. I, I, I would extend that, um, Gareth, to, to pretty much all of the like-minded air forces that I've worked with, certainly the case for the RAF, the French, mm. uh, the Singaporean, Republic of Singapore Air Force, are, are amazing trainers. They've got a lot of uh, f really foundational um, training practices that they put in, uh, in place to, to select the best. And uh, I, I make no bones about saying that some folk don't deserve to pass. So natural attributes uh, or, or mindsets that they were not meant to be. Yeah. F-18 pilots or indeed uh, doctors or what they, sure, they'll, they'll sure. find their way in life. Is Would it be a fair assumption to say join the Air Force day one, end up day 30, 100 as Chief of Air Force, not you, I'm not talking about you now, that all of the training that you go through as you step up and are selected to do different courses, the person who finally makes it into the role of Chief of Air Force has a greater understanding of people uh, of organisation, of cooperation than than they would have if they had just gone st stay at a jet pilot and work their way up to the top. Is that a fair assumption? Yes, it is in a modern air force. I don't believe it was the case in days gone by. Your early days, you mean, or days even preceding D that? Days preceding me, for sure. Uh, even in my early days, there was still a very uh, tactical approach to your career development if you're a logistician you stay in the loggy path if you're uh, an engineer you stay engineering uh, if you're a pilot you stay in the cockpit but you can't stay in the cockpit you forever. can't no no and that it that is the uh, that is the shift I believe in uh, contemporary defense force but specifically uh, the Royal Australian Air Force is uh, you, you have to step out of your lane to be able to appreciate the diversity of the decision making that you'll be responsible for later, you, you can't stay there and be successful. Of course, and and to me that's a great strength in yep. any organisation yep. that adopts that philosophy. What were the steps? How did you go from navigator to pilot? What were that? How did that happen? <laughs> uh, I became the squeaky wheel. I, I was posted to Eleven Squadron, uh, at, with flying uh, with maritime, but I was still riding to. Um, personnel branch and telling him I still want to be a pilot. <laughs> uh, in in the first year I was at uh, at Edinburgh, and I uh, I was rather persistent. I, I the little boy in year four keeps going. Pretty much, I I, I would do my turn at a station, a sensor station at the back of the one hundred and thirty five thousand pounds of screaming ASW death, and then I would wander up the front and sit with the pilots and I would watch and ask questions and and occasionally if it was a QFI uh, in the seat then I could jump in the seat. What's and a QFI? Sorry. Uh, sorry, a qualified flying instructor. Okay, right. So I could, a, a, a flying instructor could put a non-pilot in the other seat un, in, in the right environment yep. and illegally let them fly. Uh, so uh, I, I would do that whenever I could. I would be home late 
many evenings because I would go down to the simulator and I would ask to fly the simulator even if it was for 10 or 15 minutes at sure. the end of when they're tidying up and they're ready to go home. So I was rather persistent writing and uh, pushing. Would you say that you have, uh, without making you sound something like you're an ecotist, would you say you have a natural bent for flying? That's an a, innate ability? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't go there. I, I, am, I would regard myself as a solid middle-of-the-road aviator. Uh, good enough to qualify for F-111s and fly uh, a couple of thousand hours. But I was not um, a great pilot. My um, flying ability was not as good as many of the pilots that I flew with and flew against. Uh, no, so I'd say solid middle of the road operator. Okay. Well, you yeah. didn't crash. No. Oh, you're a successful pilot. It, it, End of story. Takeoffs take and landings equal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you still haven't explained. All right, you've done. You go up and sit up with the pilot and allow him to. Tell you, you go home and do study. Yep. But when did you actually get into the pilot's course? How did that occur? I kept writing and writing, as I mentioned. Uh, and then at the end of uh, 1985, uh, I uh, got a letter. Um, well, a letter got sent to my CO. His name was John Foran, um, callsign Bunter. And uh, he called me in, and I believe it was late in the week, uh, might even been a Friday, called me into the office, which is never a good thing um, <laughs> as a junior officer getting called to the boss's office. But uh, he said, uh, well, you better start packing then, or something flippant like that. And I said, oh, I'm not sure, so what are you talking about? And he handed the letter across and said, you start um, 139 pilots course in February. You must have jumped out of your seat. I was beside down with shock. Beside myself, yeah. There was yeah. A, a lot to get done uh, in preparation for for moving to Point Cook. And what year was that? Sorry again. It was uh, the end of nineteen eighty five yeah. for a February nineteen eighty six start. Okay, so you started your first training as a pilot in nineteen eighty six. Correct. So what first six months of that like? City uh, four Point Cook, uh, ab absolutely full on. Uh, the, the flying was outstanding, it, it, the, the, the feeling of, of flying, although there's a small piece here, uh, I, I, that's not the first time I had flown. I lived in Strathmerton, but uh, almost every Sunday through my HSC year, I would ride my push bike to Tokemal Airfield and get free lessons uh, from a, a gentleman named John Williams. Uh, who I still free free, free, free lessons because uh, John John would help me do the pre-flight uh, and I would do the pre-flight hop in do the checks as best if he was running short on time he would take over we'd get airborne and fly to Benalla or to Daniloquin or to Yarrawonga or somewhere where he was giving lessons for all of Sunday and I would do my HSC study in the little office whilst he was doing lessons and then I would get a free lesson on the way home. Ah. So you were very lucky. So he he was uh, very generous. Uh, he said, well, "I've still got to get there at anyway. I've got to go go there. So you might as well come with me." And that's how I, I got my first flight. So you did have flying skills before you actually got into the f the, air, the air force's flying school. Correct. So that must have been a bit of a shock for the trainer. This oh, this guy seems to know what he's doing. Uh, no, no, not, not quite. It's the civilian and uh, military training regime is quite different. Uh, Naturally, it, it, in fact, some some still maintain. I don't know that it's wholly true, but some maintain that 
uh, too much civilian flying before joining uh, the, the Air Force or the Army or the Navy to aviate uh, is not good. You learn too many bad habits, inverted commas. Uh, but I, I certainly would encourage anyone listening who is thinking about a flying career, get some flying experience. The idea of the sensation, the sound, the smells, the, the feel of the aircraft, that's important to have uh, those ready for day one, yeah, I think. A little bit of anecdote from me. My son's best friend is now in the Royal Australian Air Force, and when they were both at school, he always wanted to be in the Air Force, and so he went and did pilot training, not with the Air Force, private, civilian, yep. and then became very, very good at it. And then when he applied to get into the Air Force, what's one of the things they said to him? They said, you have had all this training from the civilians. Our training is a little bit different. We're not quite sure whether you'd be suited to that area. Now he's flying Hercules, so yeah. something, something, worked, something worked out well. The, Gareth, the, the, probably the flying bit was, was demanding. It was, uh, it was hard work. It, there were no real, um, I'm airborne and wow, look at the view across Port Phillip Bay. There was none of that. The, the one element that I, I offer here is very early on, I understood clearly, no equivocation here at all, I would have failed pilot's course if I had not done NAV course first. Really? Absolutely. If I had gone in as an 18-year-old off the dairy farm into pilot training at Point Cook in 1979, I would have failed. It's an interesting assessment of yourself, but you didn't, so whatever you did before it, that's, that's history, that, and that's yep. great. Yep. Uh, so what was the first kinds of planes that you flew in the course? CT4 okay. at Point Cook. Uh, graduated from Point Cook, uh, one flight training school, and then posted across to uh, two flight training school at RAF Base Pierce. RAF Base Pierce, yep. And flew Mackie. Mackie. Good experience first flight in the Mackie or, or a bit dangerous? Uh, the, the first couple of trips in the Mackie, in fact, the first part of that... That's two-seat, isn't it? Two-seat, yeah. yep. Uh, tandem. Uh, the Mackie was just a gem. It was a wonderful aircraft, very smooth, uh, a lot faster than a CD4, of course. It was a jet, so that was exciting. Yeah. Pretty simple instrumentation, pretty basic aircraft. The first part of the flying at Pierce I found to be really enjoyable, and I did reasonably well at it. Uh, it was my general feeling. I've not looked at my student notes, but I, I, I felt pretty comfortable. And that's when things shifted into the back half of the training at Pierce, it became not just learning to fly, you've already done that. Now you need to learn how to operate it. This became low-level navigation where you have a problem. A low-level navigation where you have a fictitious surface-to-air missile site at the turn point sure. four. Now what are you going to do about it? it? We're doing aerobatics. We were doing formation flying. We were doing very... Uh, um, you had to understand that this wasn't just an aircraft and you went flying. There had to be a result from the end of your mission. So is this second part then tactical? Learning? Yes, but there was more of a tactical element and that's when things became quite demanding. There were so many things going on on every trip. There were no, no enjoyable bits. Okay, so <laughs> the fact that you saw your way through that, to what... Do you put that down to the people that were help, that were teaching you, training you, or your determination to succeed, or combination of both? I, I think a combination's fair. I had 
good instructors. I had instructors that could relate to me. Uh, I, I, bearing in mind, I'm, I'm a flight lieutenant now, where most of the other course members were pilot officers or flying officers, uh, and and they were still learning some of the world things. Mm. I, I uh, married child, uh, uh, so. I, that's why I still maintain my time as a navigator, my time at 11 Squadron taught me airmanship, taught me teamwork, taught me a bunch of things that I didn't have to worry about and I could concentrate on, on, the, on the academics and the flying yep. and the tactical aspects. How did you end up commanding number one squadron and then number 82 wing? I'm, I know I'm leaping, but how did that happen? I... I I'm struggling to find an answer to that one. It, it's well, let me to it, ask the question again. It, no, <laughs> it, it it is. Uh, how did I get there? I I don't know because around me were a bunch of really uh, talented operators. There are there is one aspect to that that um, again I I it's it's luck timing. Uh, it 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 is about uh, having experienced something different. I went to the United States and flew on exchange with the USAF. Mm -hmm. uh, F-111Ds at Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico. Uh, that really opened my eyes to how important our relationship with the United States Air Force and indeed the United States Navy was and is and will be. I, I learnt a lot about um, being part of a big system rather than it was my transition, if you like, from being just a single tactical not not a a single pilot, but understanding where the squadron, f f where it fitted into the wing, into before we had didn't have a FEG then, but it, into strike reconnaissance group at the time, uh, where that fitted into the air force, and and it was it was that American experience that gave me mm. that, and I came back with a, I think more mature view, and I became a flight commander at at one squadron, mm. then XO at one squadron. Uh, I think the EXO job was in some respects, again, lucky. Quite a few, if you remember back, or folk remember back, there was quite a few folk, fast jet pilots going to Qantas and uh, the airlines answered at the time. Uh, so there were uh, less, less uh, folk to choose from. Uh, what was it like in the United States of America Avi as a pilot, as a Avi Aviating <coughs> the... One of my very early recollections of being at Cannon was uh, an interview with the CO of the time, uh, and he, he said, uh, uh, basic experience, where'd you come from? Uh, went through all of that, and we took a walk out of the squadron uh, building, out onto the flight line. Uh, at the time, we only had the, the, the two squadrons of F-111s, this is pre-F-111G, uh, and uh, it, I looked out and, the, and there were 108 F-111s parked uh, on the tarmac wow. and I nearly fell over. And, 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 he, and he, he, he said, uh, so they're not all mine. I only own th these 40 odd. Uh, and I thought that this, this single squadron, this uh, wing commander equivalent, this, this <laughs> Tenant commander, he, he, he was in charge of more aircraft than the entire Royal Australian Air Force in terms of F-111. Yeah, yeah. And that was a big... Uh, th there were the the access, if you like, to weapons types 
air-to-air refueling almost every day, flew every day. Uh, if a jet broke, I'd go and get another one. If that broke, I'd go and get another one. Uh, you always went flying. Uh, there was just this massive machine that kept the United States Air Force, and, and this is one little base, if you like, in one part of the uh, United States, and uh, it really was an experience. Yeah. So, uh, so I learned a lot. Skill aside, skill aside, would you say that's one of the hallmarks of the United States Air Force? Its size? Absolutely. Uh, uh, size, and uh, uh, some folk would not perhaps agree with me, but until you've flown with them and understood their functionality, I would also offer that the United States Air Force uh, have some of the most skilled people on the planet. They are individually in their lane extremely good at what they do. The Australian benefit is that we expand the knowledge base of our operators so we can do multiple things really well but but it, the USAF rely on this expertise the skill in one skill, area and we'll, we'll have a hundred people to get the job done Australia might only have 25 there is a real weight to the approach of the United mm. States Air Force and that's why I find when you put Aussies and Americans there are other allies that work extremely well with us uh, I'm not leaving no, them out yeah. I'm just talking about the American yeah. story here as you asked me I found when we put ourselves together, the outcome was uh, almost always extraordinarily good. Do, do they have the same regard for us, our oh, air force? Absolutely, absolutely. And is that voiced? It is. It is voiced uh, often and loud. Uh, it, you, you. It would extend here, and I'm sp I'm expanding on this answer. It worked for me. I saw it when I was at Cannon uh, in 1980, thereabouts. Uh, sorry, in 1990, uh, it w it worked when we flew exercises when we uh, went to the United States and when they came here to exercises like Pitch Black up in Northern Territory, and it certainly worked uh, on deployments to the Middle East. Where uh, and and I, I I would be bold enough to say that every nationality that I've worked for over my 40 years uh, in the Air Force, uh, when they saw that it was an Aussie. Didn't matter whether it was a soldier, a sailor, or now an aviator, airman, air woman. Uh, when when there was an Aussie saddling up beside them and going, okay, we're right here. Yeah. It was a very- I'll go to war with you. I'll go to war with you. Yeah. Uh, no, no question. Um, you've mentioned the um, postings overseas. Uh, in 1990, you were off to the 523rd Tactical Fighter Squadron. That's the F-111s, and yep. you spent two years and then back to Amberley. Yep. Let's jump to 2007, because you posted to the Middle East. Mm. Uh, what was your role there? I was a battle cab director. Uh, what, what that effectively means is you have a, a, a combined air operations centre commander, uh, two-star. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a one-star and uh, I was an 06, a group captain. Under uh, that one star. Uh, under that one star. Yep. But there were three of us, three battle cab directors to cover a 24-hour window because quite often when you started your planned eight-hour shift, you were still there 15 hours later because a particular event was unfolding. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the best description of the battle cab director was you had your team on the combined air operations centre floor. So you were in a crow's nest, if you like, looking down across the floor comms with all of your specializations on the floor some of them weapons some of them intel some mm. of them were um, 
unmanned aerial system operators, some were army, some were marine, some, and you were the somewhat, I know it's it, it, hard to describe, but to, Mike... You're the puppet master? Yeah, the, 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 almost the conductor, in, in, uh, the tactical yep. conductor. Yep. Not, not the big strategy developer, not writing air plans, not, none of that. It was the day-to-day, this is what we're going to achieve on the air task order. Here are the number of jets. There, is, there were German jets, there were French, there were Australian, there were uh, uh, operators, that, Americans largely, Dutch. And it was coordinating them when an event happened and you had uh, an event like a tick, a troop in contact. A, a coalition troop was being fired upon. What are we going to do about it? The battle cab director was the conductor of the we've got a pair of f-16s over here they're only 10 miles away how do we go about getting them to come and help sure. out this particular sure. that sort of uh, daily tactical experience and yeah. what was the position of the australian contingent in the international command structure in that time you were there where where would you put us we we had uh at my predecessor as CAF, uh, jeff brown he was there earlier in the 2000s mm-hmm. Uh, and he was 2IC effectively. So we, we've had KOC directors, we've had one star, so we've occupied uh, pretty much all of the positions within the Combined Air Operations Centre over time uh, and shared them with our coalition partners. So it was really, I'd, I'd, I'd say respectfully, uh, we, we played our part in pretty much every role within the KOC uh, so over time. Would that also be would what reinforce the perception of the Aussie defence person? A- absolutely. What, yeah, right. And and the uh, the coalition were very generous in providing training. Would you go to a United States um, or to uh, UK uh, and learn about uh, what a contemporary uh, communications and uh, planning cycle was about? Sure. How did you make it and why did you make it to Air Attaché? What was all that about when you were posted to Washington, D.C.? <laughs> uh, the, the Air Attaché opportunity uh, ca- came up. I, I had been for some years asking for a diplomatic posting, uh, not necessarily to the United States, but I'd, I'd lost touch, if you like, with now getting more senior, so as an as an an 06, a group captain, 07 uh, Air Commodore, uh, I hadn't had uh, any diplomatic or uh, international engagement mm-hmm. uh, roles. So I had been asking for that for several years in my posting You're conferences. You're a persistent letter writer, aren't you? Uh, this year, uh, four boys. <laughs> I yeah, want to be a pilot. I want to be a pilot. I want to be a pilot. Oh, this one so. wasn't... Uh, wasn't uh, a, 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 I didn't besiege personnel branch with uh, letters. It was through our normal posting sure, cycle. So sure. each, each year I would write in there, what, what would you desire? Uh, every, we called it the dream sheet. Yep. So I, I dreamt big. And uh, it, it, uh, it, that, that came about. There was an option to go to the United States... The other factor in there, of course, is that I had um, married Rhonda, and uh, what year was this? Uh, we got we got married in uh, 1982. Uh, sorry, 1990, 1992. 1992. Excuse me, I keep saying 80. 1992 uh, on the way back from Canon Air Force okay. Base. Okay. Okay. Uh, and she's American. Is she an American? Right. West, West Virginia. In the Defence Force? No, she's a registered nurse okay we'll, we'll come back to the family in just a moment you, you're air, air attache you, you get posted what is it why did you want to do it uh the this was the uh about the time when i 
knew that I would be promoted to Air Commodore uh, and the flow on from that position. So Director General Capability Planning in Air Force Headquarters, my first role as Air Commodore. And what I was seeing was an understanding of uh, Air Force's capability development. I'd been in that role uh, a couple of times prior. But uh, what I didn't didn't have was how we worked with the United States and even then I could see that this relationship was going to be extremely important and I wanted to be part of how mm. how that worked and understand it. So in my view, uh, you, you couldn't really be effective as a senior officer in the ADF without an understanding of how or the American system, you, you had training. to know about it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. What, 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 is, what does an air attaché in, in Washington do? There are more than four, but I'm going to use four positions. There is an Army, Navy, Air Force attaché, and there's one stars, and then a two-star um, chief of staff, if you like. So, so the head of, de- of defence staff, HADS, head of Australian defence staff yep. in Washington is a two-star. It rotates different services. Yep. Uh, they do the largely the uh, relationship with the ambassador, and the relationship, the Australian, the Australian ambassador. ambassador, and the relationship with the United States uh, into the Pentagon and to Capitol. Wow, uh, it, it is a big quite, job. Quite a powerful role, the two-star position. The three one stars advise. So here's what's going on in Air Force. Here's an issue I think you should tackle, sir or ma'am. Mm. Uh, the, yeah, the, the, everything's fine at the moment. We're, we're going along. Here's some good news stories. Here's some stuff you need mm. to work on. Uh, so it was uh, pulling in all of the Air Force folk, and there were a couple of hundred Air Force folk in the United States at school, on postings, on exchanges, uh, uh, and it was coordinating their input back into one focal point, yep. the, be- the belly button for Air Force in yep. Washington, uh, in the United States. Wow. So that's a year, co- are you assigned there for a specific time, or is it open-ended? <laughs> the, the, if I describe it this way, Gareth, the, the, um, if you were to take a space view of the Pacific Ocean at the moment, there are still 10 claw marks that come from mainland United States. They go around Hawaii and then end up uh, in Canberra. They are my wife's claw marks because uh, I didn't... Just before we went on posting, um, one officer named Mark Binskin... Uh, who was the chief of the Air Force at the time, later to become CDF, uh, he came in and said, Leo, we're really thinking about you for another job. And back it's in gonna, Australia. Back in Australia. It's going to come up in a year or so's time. Uh, we don't know whether you should go. And this I said, is Deputy Chief of Air Force, I bet. Yeah. That's correct. Uh, and uh, Jeff Brown was Deputy Chief at the time, and uh, he said, Leo, it could be as short as 12 months. And I said, I, I know, but it's not guaranteed it might not be me, or it might be delayed a year. Or, uh, I, 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 I do want to go, so I went. Why were the? Did your wife not? Did Rhonda not want to leave the United States, or she wanted to get you back to Australia? Which was it? I, I felt like if uh, if I told her that um, there was a chance it would only be twelve months, she'd say she didn't want to go. So you, did you tell her? No. Okay. Not until and- not until. Uh, Angus Houston was coming across, uh, he was CDF, uh, he came across for a visit and I thought, ah, oh, there's no way I can get past three days of him not mentioning that I'm coming back as decaf. So uh, I, I told her. 
And you're still married? Just. Okay. Um, and, you, and you do still go for a bike ride occasionally. <laughs> she sits behind me so she can thump me on yeah, the helmet. Thump you on the elbows, yeah. Uh, all right, 2011, I assume then that's the year you become Deputy Chief of Air Force. Yeah. And it's four years in that role before you make it to Chief of Air Force. Correct. What occurred between 2011 and 2015 that made someone think, this guy should be Chief of Air Force? Do you think? I, it was a quite a transformation to work uh, not just with Jeff Brown as the chief of the day. We worked together really well and worked together in, in jobs previously. Uh, and uh, it, it was, I think, more an ongoing picture of what Air Force needed. And, and I, now I do draw on perhaps one of, one of the pieces that made sense to me in, in my selection. Uh, there were other folk who, current chief was also in the running, uh, Mel what, what could have been chief uh, in that uh, 15 to 19 period as well. But what I felt like was somebody, uh, whether that was Angus Houston, the government of the day, the Air Force more broadly, uh, I would think Mark Binskin had a fair bit to do with this, uh, and and a Jeff Shepherd and a, a Angus, as I mentioned. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you look across the service chiefs from about Angus Houston, they're not all the same. Jeff Shepherd was not Angus Houston. Angus, for me, bought a. I don't know whether I'm deviating too no, far here. No, you're not deviating at all. For me, Angus Houston was a setter of a culture within Air Force that lives today and is such an important part of values-based mission accomplishment. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't the tactical operator. He wasn't the capability development driver. He, he was a great seller of ideas and a, and a very good politician uh, and, a, and a gentleman, true gentleman. Uh, worked way too hard. I was staff officer to Angus for a year and nearly killed me. Uh, but it, he, he bought that piece. We needed something then from our leadership that Jeff Shepard was, in my view, a perfect pick for. And I, I suggest he'll go um, uh, a long way to bringing that tactical piece back again. We, mm. we need things that go whoosh bang and we need to operate as an Air Force <coughs> uh, and and and, and uh, Jeff bought that piece, that next piece, while he was CAF. Yep. When Mark Binskin got the job uh, as CAF, what Binny started to influence was jointness. He, he bought, yeah, we've got a great culture set up by two chiefs ago. We've got a, a great combat capability growing, at which Jeff started. And then Binny bought the, but we need to play as a defence force. We need to sell Air Force to Army and Navy and to our politicians. And that became a, a, just a crucial element. Jeff Brown got in and he just got all of those things that were set up and said, we're now going to buy them. We, we, we're going to bring this equipment, our training system. We're going to bring all of this now into the modern. So when I look at why I was selected, my relationship skills, my focus more on the people and, and mm. the the nuts and bolts or the nitty gritty, what I, what I set out to do as CAF was make it work. Okay, well, clearly you did. Uh, <clears throat> and you must tell them to listen to this one day. <laughs> but uh, Rhonda, Erin, 
and Jacob, yep. your two children, what debt do you owe to them oh. in terms of what roles you've had? It, it is a really difficult uh, thing to describe. Uh, there are times... What, what I owe them uh, largely is the ability to go to work every day mm. and perform. Uh, it meant on days that were late or I came home absolutely tired or indeed some days angry uh, about what might have transpired, it was their innate ability to read that very quickly and, uh, and say, just leave Dad alone for a little while. No words spoken, but let, let, let Dad uh, get mm. on with what he needs to for the moment. And other times it was just to give me a big hug. So, Rhonda, if you're listening and haven't gone back to the United States of America, <laughs> and Erin and Jacob, uh, all I can say is, and there are a whole list of awards that uh, Leo has achieved in his career that we've already listed in the introduction. You should, as a wife and as children of this man, be very, very proud of what he's achieved. And he has been part of the second longest air force in English history. Leo, thank you for your time. Pleasure. Um, and I respect and admire your modesty. One day someone else should write a biography, not an autobiography, of you and really underpin what you have achieved and how significant it has been for the history of the Royal Australian Air Force. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thanks, Gareth. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.